Chapter Twenty Nine of Yesterday Framed in Today by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine. Therefore, will not we fear? The end seems inadequate to the means, doesn't it? A few months spent in the neighborhood by a poor stranger who gathered a handful of followers, most of them from the ranks of what were called the common people, and inoffensive as he was, doing only kindnesses wherever he went, he some way secured the hatred of those in power, and was speedily put out of the way. Yet with what result? The fanaticism has suddenly spread until the entire city is roused, and the followers of this man are counted by thousands instead of by dozens. And many of them are substantial people, I am told, by no means to be counted among the rabble, which has been such a favorite word to apply to them heretofore. I wonder how it is all to be accounted for. And I wonder what you officials are going to do about it. You fancied that you had disposed of the leader, and here are his followers increasing in a single day a hundredfold. David was almost as much astonished as was their guest. He had never before heard Francis speak in that calm, cold tone. He hesitated just what to say. But, as Mr. Masters did not gather his wits for speech, he turned to Francis with a grave smile. "'People do not understand,' he said. "'If they could all be made to realize that even such a formidable enemy as the grave had no power over our leader, save for the brief length of time that he chose to have it so, and that he lives to-day and shall live forever, and lead his followers to final victory,' the knowledge would take hold of them with such power that it would revolutionize their lives. He could not tell how his father would listen to such words, but he had been summoned here, and he was a witness. Mr. Masters found his voice. "'I beg your pardon,' he said hurriedly, "'but can it indeed be possible that you are in collusion with this unparalleled piece of knavery?' Of course you do not actually believe that the man whom the authorities caused to be executed, in accordance with the law, and who was laid in the grave by some of his own followers, really came to life and appeared again on earth. David looked at his questioner with steady, quiet eyes. What do you believe? he asked. Did you visit that empty grave, Mr. Masters, and note the useless grave clothes folded there, and consult that panic-stricken guard of soldiers? What do you believe about it? Believe, repeated Felix Masters, with his most hateful sneer. Why, my dear sir, the veriest child on the streets knows what to believe. It is simple enough, an almost ludicrous combination of knavery and folly. The body was stolen, of course, by some of his sharp friends who have concocted this precious story. The grave clothes, of which you make so much, were left with a purpose evidently, since those in collusion with this remarkable deception are always pushing them to the front. "'And the guard of soldiers?' said David, still very quietly. "'Have they been punished in accordance with the law for their unparalleled unfaithfulness to their trust? And that large company of people who saw and heard the dead after he had returned to life, who walked with him, talked with him, dined with him, and received the orders which will henceforth control their lives from his lips, men like Mr. Rothwell and Mr. Markham, and others of like character, that you know I could name, have they all suddenly become utterly untrustworthy? 
Mr. Masters lost every vestige of self-control. "'Confound them all!' he said, his voice rising. "'Masses of them are dupes led on by a few consummate liars. Why did we never see this mysterious person who walked and talked and dined with you? Why is it that though we set guards on every side and watched day and night, we never caught so much as a glimpse of him?' the story is not worthy of your usual sharpness holman it would not be believed by a ten-year-old boy unless he wished to make capital out of it may not the officers who were set to guard every point have been like those soldiers who guarded the grave they you say permitted a few desolate unarmed men to rob the grave and carry away the body may not the other watchmen have permitted our friend to pass you evidently do not trust your watchmen mr masters David could not resist this bit of sarcasm, but what reply would have been made will not be known, for it was Margaret Holman who suddenly came to the front, her face pale with indignation. "'Father,' she said, "'must we all sit and hear our brother insulted? Mr. Masters has, at least twice, much more than hinted that David was in collusion with people whose deliberate intention was to plan an awful lie for the purpose of deceiving.' now whatever may be said of others we certainly know our own must we patiently endure such language as this had she been looking at david she would have seen his eyes flash with joy but mr masters made haste to speak i beg your pardon miss margaret you misunderstand me i have always taken the ground that your brother was among the deceived i have marvelled at it but I did not mean to convey the impression that he was himself an impostor. My language may have been too strong. "'I think it was,' said Margaret coldly. "'And I do not think you have improved it. I want to make an explanation just here, or a confession. I myself am one of those dupes. I believe in the man whom you call an impostor. Believe in him with all my soul.' and if you would like to know what first opened my eyes to the sin of the course you pursued with regard to him, it was the unparalleled cruelty that you officers of the law not only permitted toward the prisoner, but helped on. Also it was the farce that you called a trial. Why, Mr. Masters, a boy of ten could laugh at the folly of calling it justice when you broke almost every law in your code to hurry it through." as I watched these things, and studied and weighed them, I said to myself, they are not punishing a traitor, they are trying to get rid of a man whom they fear and hate. And my eyes were very widely opened. I am one of the traitors. Thank God! exclaimed David Holman, springing to his feet. The joy of this outweighs all the suffering I have had. As he spoke, he went over to Margaret, and, bending down, kissed her earnestly. Then, while their dumbfounded guests seemed trying to decide what could be said next, the elder Mr. Holman cleared his voice, and spoke with the slowness that characterized his deliberate acts. Mr. Masters, we should perhaps apologize for anything that may seem discourteous to you. My daughter Margaret is very much excited. I did not know her position. I have heard it for the first time from her lips to-night. I think she had some provocation for the words she used about you. But I have more toleration for them than can be expected of her, for I know to what length a blind prejudice will lead one, and I know you expected to find an ally in me. 
i should perhaps have told you at the beginning of this interview what i want to say now that a great and i believe lasting change has come to me i do not pretend to be very wise but there are things that i know and one is i know that my son's words about that empty grave are true i have seen that man mr masters and felt his power i have the light that comes only from him burning in my soul at this moment so not only my son and daughters but their father and mother cast in their lots with him and are to be numbered henceforth among those who follow where he leads i sent for my son in order to tell him this but i had planned to do it in a different way david made the only response that would have been possible for him at that moment oh father cannot we all kneel down and speak to him and while david holman was praying as he had never prayed before the guest slipped away in the intense joy of the moment he had been forgotten when they arose from their knees they were alone and the street door was closed the evening following david spent in his room writing to miriam the letter was long and took much thought and prayer at first he meant to call upon her and say what he feared he could not make plain enough in writing and then remembering how impossible it had been to talk plainly to her he had resolved upon the written attempt during all those wonderful weeks when he had been living his new life anchored and centred in his risen saviour miriam had been out of town a tenderly written note that he had received from her signed as ever your miriam had informed him that she was going to spend a few weeks with an invalid friend who needed her in the solitude of his own room david's face had flushed over the instant sense of relief that came to him at the thought that they were not in the same city but this he assured himself afterwards was because he did not yet know what course to pursue now his way was clear miriam had chosen to hold him or rather to recall him to a pledge that she had herself broken and he was therefore bound but he must be true she must understand precisely what she was doing and what life he must henceforth lead it is as though i had lived years since i last saw you the letter ran then i was under the power of a great sorrow and disappointment i felt bewildered at times now life spreads before me as clear as sunlight miriam in that last talk we had you remember you told me that you would make no more effort to turn my thoughts from the master i had chosen but i did not then know what a blessed glorious master he is i know now that i give joyfully all my powers to his service that i am henceforth to live for the purpose of proclaiming his name to others it is due to you that i tell you at once that i have given up all idea of the law as a profession i am to become a preacher of the truth the truth as it is embodied in our risen saviour it is to be my daily joy to help others to know him i need scarcely tell you how earnestly i long for the time when i may claim you among those who are constantly coming into a knowledge of the truth i hope and pray that i may be the one to show you the beauty of his life and the power of his resurrection i ask you miriam to join with me in my life work as i have described it remember that you would not feel conspicuous or lonely any more hundreds nay thousands 
many of them your neighbors and acquaintances, have accepted the risen master as their king. There was very much more of it. He spent more than half the night with her, in imagination, going over the story, making it as sweet as an earnest heart given over to the love of it could make it sound to another. As he wrote, the conviction grew upon him that she must not resist his appeal. Aside from her own personal safety and happiness, he must not for his sake, for he was bound to her by cords of honor than which none were stronger. And how could he do his work well with a divided life? And then he groaned in spirit, and told his awakened conscience for the hundredth time that if he had been really truly alive, he would not have sought to join to his a life that was out of accord. What need, however, to go over that ground? He had asked Miriam to be his wife. She had been his deliberate choice, and she held him to the pledge. She had a right to do it. The master would not let him spoil his life nor hers. He was doing right. The master would guide. The morning of a new day was upon him before he sealed his letter. Then he arose from his knees to do it. Upon its reply depended, humanly speaking, very much of his future usefulness, so he believed. He must wait. Through the long days he waited, eager to be at work, burning to join his friends in town and mature plans for the immediate future. He yet waited. His father's work pressed as usual, and he found plenty to occupy him. He found also great joy in the long conversations which he held with father and mother, wherein he began his life work, and taught to eager ears the beautiful new truths that had been revealed to him. In truth, the little family had reason to look back afterwards upon these weeks of waiting, as a time when they had daily foretastes of what the coming heaven would be. Philip Nelson, meantime, came and went quite as he used to do in the olden time. No, not quite either. There was a quiet sense of satisfaction in the greeting that the father gave him, such as there had never been before. Mr. Holman was not a man who did anything half-heartedly. It gave him a peculiar sense of joy that he was to have not only a son, but a son-in-law, whose life-work was to be to direct others to the master whom he had himself chosen. Only Francis knew for what the son waited. The father and mother were curious, perhaps, but not questioning. They had learned to trust this son of theirs, not only his heart but his judgment. He would make a splendid businessman would the father say when having a bit of talk with his wife, and then she felt her heart glow with joy over the satisfaction in his tone as he added, but he is going to be something better than that. Perhaps it was Frances who waited most breathlessly for the reply to that letter. Her brother had learned a lesson of trust. It is true that, as the days went by and no answer came, he began to ask himself what the next step should be if he received no word, but immediately he told himself that of course Miriam would write or would send for him. Had she not recalled him when there was no occasion for her to do so? Had she not written to him even after that last interview and signed herself as ever yours? Of course she would make some response. It was like Miriam perhaps to wait, and weary his soul with conjectures. 
he chided himself sternly for admitting so much, and then set about apologizing for her. She had been disappointed, doubtless, in his change of life work. She had always wanted him to be a lawyer. He must give her time to get used to the thought of that and other changes. At last the response came. They were at the breakfast table when the letters were brought in. Margaret was curious over David's, but he left the table with it still unopened. An hour afterwards he brought its contents to show to Francis. It was the formal announcement of the marriage of Felix Masters and Miriam Brainerd Brownlee. "'Thank God!' said Francis. "'Margaret is saved. And you—oh, David, when I think of you, I cannot help saying it again. Thank God!' Months afterwards they were standing together in the vine-wreathed porch of the Rothwell home, David and Mary Holman. They had come back there for a few days of rest after a season of eager work. Their minds that evening were busy with memories. "'Do you remember,' said Mary, as her eyes rested on the thrifty vines, "'that night when he said, "'I am the vine, you are the branches? "'It is good to belong to such a vine, David.' I said David, and I remember when he said, Let not your heart be troubled. I am trying to keep that word with me during these threatening days. Danger is before us, Mary. I feel it in the air, and I own I tremble sometimes for you. That man Masters and his wife are very busy, and shrink at nothing. And the young man, their friend, whom we saw last week, is ready for persecution even to the death of all who bear the name of Christian. I saw Stephen this afternoon, and tried to warn him. I am sure he is in special danger. But Stephen is not afraid, is he? Oh, Stephen lives on the mountain top. His face made me think of the masters. But that is a reason why they will hate him the more. There was a silence for a moment. Then Mary said, as she tightened her hold upon his arm, "'Oh, David, cannot we rejoice if we shall be counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake?' "'Yes,' said David, solemnly. "'We will be ready, and in order that we may be, we must keep ever before us that last word of his. Lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end.'" End of chapter 29 End of Yesterday Framed in Today by Pansy. Recording by Tricia G. Thanks for listening.